I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. You know, in helping people understand the gospel, I often say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's maybe nowhere more apparent than in the book of Romans, because in the first 11 chapters, Paul describes the gospel to us, and it's all about our relationship to Jesus Christ. And then he begins getting practical in chapter 12, and what we find out is that our Christianity is also expressed through relationship. He says it's about our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to others, our relationship to the government, our relationship to society. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I think we continually need to be reminded of that as Christians. Because I find that we tend to become religious. We tend to like to reduce things down to a code of ethics or a system of rituals, and we've got it all figured out. We oftentimes establish our sanctimonious little stacks. This is right, this is wrong. You know what? About the time we think we've got the Christian life all figured out, Paul hits us with a chapter like Romans chapter 14. And he says, hey, wait a minute. You've forgotten somebody. You've forgotten a relationship. It's your brother who sees things differently than you do. It's your brother who has a different conscience than you have. It's a brother who has different stacks than you do. You see, some things in life have moral significance. They are right or wrong. They are good or bad. They are pleasing to God or not pleasing to God. And Scripture spells it out. It's black and white. It's clear and defined. But then there are other areas, areas that have no moral significance, areas where well-meaning Christians differ, areas that we call gray areas. And Paul mentions three of them in this chapter. He talks about diet in verse 2. Those in the first century from a Jewish background had grown up eating a particular diet. Now they'd become Christians, and sometimes their consciences were still a little sensitive in the area of eating pork and so forth. Those from a Gentile background had, had participated in worship where they sacrificed animals to idols and then ate the meat, and now their conscience was a little sensitive about eating meat that had been offered to idols and was now being sold in the grocery store. And then he mentions another area, and that's days in verse 5. Those from a Jewish background had grown up observing the Sabbath day and new moons and festival weeks and feast days, and, and they had this background of some days were more holy than other days. And so their conscience was weak in trying to participate in the fact that every day is the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we shall rejoice in it. And then the third area is drink, and he mentions that just in passing in verse 21, drinking wine. Now, first, of course, in the first century, wine was a staple on every table. Bread and wine were always on the table every time they had a meal, and that's why Jesus chose those two elements to use to remember him. That's why the early church could eat meals together in their houses and break bread remembering the Lord Jesus because there was always bread and wine on the table. But this 
issue has become a bigger issue today in the church whether somebody drinks wine or does not drink wine. Now, you can add all kinds of other things today, like working on Sunday or various forms of entertainment, like playing cards or going to movies or going to dances, degrees in style of dress or wearing makeup. These are areas of liberty. And Christians differ in their perspective on these things. And so Paul says there's really two categories of Christians. There are those that he calls weak in faith in chapter 14 and verse 1. This is a Christian who has his Christian life worked out more in terms of, rela of regulations than in terms of relationship. He can't accept his freedom in Christ. He's got a lot of scruples. He has a conscience that is overly sensitive. He is weak in faith. And then the second group he calls strong in faith. That's the person who has a clear understanding of God's grace. He accepts his liberty in Christ. He's not hung up in these gray areas. Now what's interesting to me is that Paul does not approach this subject on the basis of right and wrong. He doesn't say, let's agree on a code of conduct we can all live with. No. Because you see, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is relationship. Now Paul does clearly say that these areas are not wrong. In fact, look at verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And so Paul says, when it comes to these areas, the strong brother is right. It's right to eat all foods. It's right to treat all days the same. It's right to drink wine. But there is more involved than just being right. And so Paul doesn't say, everybody get with the program, everybody see it this way. No. Instead, he says, in your different perspectives, here's how to interact with each other. Here's how to get along with each other. Here's how to relate. Now, in the first 12 verses that we saw last week, he gives four exhortations. The first two are to the strong. He says, accept the weak, in verse 1. And then in verse 3, he says, don't despise the weak brother. And then his third exhortation is to the weak. He says, don't judge the strong at the end of verse 3. Don't try to force your list of scruples on him. Don't judge him for what he's doing that you can't do. And then he gives a fourth exhortation to all of us, and that's in verse 5, be fully convinced in your own mind. And then as we saw last week, he gave seven reasons why we're not to judge our brother. Because God has accepted him. He's not your responsibility. He will stand because God is able to make him stand and God will make him stand. You don't know his motives. Jesus is Lord. God is judge. And you're only accountable for yourself. Now, I want to make sure, after the message I gave last week, that I... I don't have you misunderstand me. Because what I said last week applies to gray areas. Areas of conscience. It doesn't apply to moral areas. So don't go away and apply this to moral areas. Don't say I sleep with my girlfriend, but it's okay because I'm strong and my conscience allows it. 
Don't say I live a homosexual lifestyle, but that's okay, that's my liberty. I get drunk on weekends, but that's okay because that's my freedom. No. You see, that's not freedom. That's bondage. That's not liberty. That's sin. If you're doing that, your conscience is not strong. Your conscience is seared. And so don't confuse the context. This is in the area of non-moral issues. You see, in the area of moral issues, Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. So when my brother sins in a moral area, I have a responsibility to realize, in essence, judge what he's doing and go and confront him about that sin in love. And so if it's an area that the Bible says is sin, you are to go to your brother and confront him. But I would say this, when you go, make sure you've got a chapter and verse. Don't go to him and say, you broke one of my unwritten rules. Or you offended one of my scruples. You see, if it's a gray area, what is your responsibility? You're not to judge. So let's make sure we understand the context of what Paul is saying here. These are non-moral issues. And having told us about our liberty in verses 1 to 12, Paul's going to now tell us how to use our liberty in verses 13 to 23. It's as if verses 1 to 12 are the statue of liberty. Verses 13 to 23 is the, is the statue of responsibility. And so in verses 13 to 23, Paul's going to remind us of two overriding factors that should temper our liberty. You see, just the fact that we're right is not the bottom line. There are a couple of factors that we have to consider, and those two factors are brotherly love and personal faith. The first is brotherly love, and that takes the major portion of these verses, verses 13 to 21. You see, there's a principle that we need to understand, and that is that liberty without love becomes license. Love always takes precedence over my liberty. And so under the general category of love, Paul suggests three priorities, three things that are more important than my liberty. And number one is the people of God in verses 13 to 15. Notice verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Paul says, let's stop judging and make this our priority, that we're not going to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. Now, that word obstacle is literally a hurdle. It's like a a speed bump that you see in the, in the parking lots to, to slow down, to hinder your progress. The other word, stumbling block, is literally a word that means snare. That's a word that means something that would grab him and hold him back. Paul says, don't put a speed bump and don't put a snare in your brother's way. You say, well, how would I do that? Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, that's not a general statement. Don't rip that out of context. That's in the context of these gray areas. 
All sin is unclean, but Paul is saying in these areas of conscience, nothing is unclean. In the area of Christian liberty, in the gray areas, in the areas of diet and days and drink, all things are clean. Nothing is wrong in itself, but, Paul says, continuing in verse 14, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now notice this carefully. He says a person can do something that isn't wrong and it can be wrong for him if he thinks it's wrong. And so a person can, can do something in an area that is a non-moral area and for him it becomes a moral area because he thinks it's wrong. And so Paul is saying, you be careful with your liberty that you don't stumble a brother and cause him to do something that for him would be wrong. And so you see, when it comes to my liberty, I can't just consider myself. I have to think about how my actions affect my weaker brother. Now let me add a footnote right here, because I, I want you to try to understand better who is the weaker brother. And to help you with that, let me, let me mention some people that are not your weaker brother. One person that is not your weaker brother is the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the legalist who believes that salvation is by works. He's trying to work his way to God. And so all the things that he's doing, he's just trying to build a bridge to heaven. That's the legalist. You don't have to worry about offending him. In fact, if you read the Gospels, Jesus went out of his way to offend the Pharisees. He healed on the Sabbath day. He ate grain on the Sabbath day. He rubbed these guys all the time because he wanted that issue to come to the surface. So you don't have to be worried about people who are legalistic Pharisees. That's not the weaker brother. Then there's a second group that is not the weaker brother. Paul calls them in Galatians 2.4, false brethren. And he says there that they sneaked in to spy out our liberty in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. Now these are apparently Pharisees in sheep's clothing. And they snuck into the church. Their goal was to see all the liberty that was going on and to put it away, put them back under bondage. You know what Paul says about them in the next verse? He says, we did not yield to them for even an hour. Those are not weaker brothers. They're Pharisees in sheep's clothing. Third person that is not your weaker brother is a guy like Peter. In Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14, Paul says that Peter came to Antioch. When he got to Antioch, you remember Peter had that vision in Acts chapter 10. He said at that time, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God, God said to him, kill and eat these animals because God has declared them clean. And so Peter had the freedom now to understand all food was clean. He could eat. So when he got to Antioch, he took advantage of that. He was there with the Gentiles and he began to eat barbecue pork ribs for the first time. And they were good. So, so he's eating with the Gentiles and enjoying this wonderful new food. And then it says some Jews showed up from Jerusalem and Peter backed away from the table and stopped eating with the Gentiles. 
You say, well, maybe Peter was just giving up his liberty for the sake of these weaker brothers that came from Jerusalem. No. You say, well, maybe Peter was the weaker brother. No. I know that because you know what Paul does in that situation? Paul confronts Peter in public and calls him a hypocrite. So that's not the weaker brother. Let me give you one more person who's not the weaker brother. This is somebody that Joe Aldrich in his book Lifestyle Evangelism calls the professional weaker brother. He's not weak in the biblical sense that his sensitive conscience will be injured by the actions of a more liberated brother. He is a mature believer who should know better, but he's always acting like he's hurt. This is somebody, he's been a Christian for a long time. He's entrenched in his weak positions, and there's no way that what you do is going to cause him to stumble. He is set in his ways, and his ways are legalistic and weak. He is the professional weaker brother. And he uses his misinterpreted weakness as a weapon to manipulate other people. And Joe Aldrich's concern is that we often allow this professional weaker brother to prohibit us from being like Jesus, who he says is characterized by a holy worldliness. Interesting phrase. Here's what he says. Listen, he says, It is the professional weaker brother, the self-appointed, rigid, unwavering, unstumbling, unmoving, immovable, self-righteous individual who often blows the whistle on Christians penetrating the non-Christian community with the gospel. To this man we must, as Paul, not give in for a moment so that the gospel may remain pure and undefiled in its simplicity and beauty. Succumbing to him makes me become bad news, a hypocrite, and a messenger of a distorted and warped gospel. Those individuals are not the weaker brother. You say, well, then who is the weaker brother? Well, he is the brother who, either because of a lack of understanding or because of his particular background, has a sensitive conscience and is susceptible to falling in a certain area. Now, how do I stumble him? Well, let me give you an example. Let's assume I'm a young believer, and in my background, I was very involved in pornography. And so for me, my conscience is very sensitive in that area. I can't even get close to that. I've got to stay away from that. And so I see you as a more mature believer going to an R-rated movie. And I say, well, if he's mature, if he can go to an R-rated movie, I guess I can. And in doing so, I injure my conscience or maybe even fall into sin. You see, you have stumbled your brother in that situation. Or let's say I have a problem with alcohol and I decide I can't even touch alcohol. I see you having a drink in public and I say, well, he's a more mature Christian. If he can do it, I can do it. And you stumble me. Or let's say, we don't have to let's say, let's say for sure that I was involved in drugs and uh, along with the drug culture, there was rock and roll music. 
Your background may be you listen to rock and roll music, there was no drugs, but for me, there's an association with rock and roll music and drugs. So maybe I have a sensitive conscience. I say, I can't really listen to rock and roll music because if I do, it brings me right back into that culture that I came out of. And then I see you coming down the road one day with your windows down, listening to Led Zeppelin. And I say, well, he's a mature Christian. If he can do that, I can do that. And you see, you stumbled your brother. You say, well, why should I have to give up my liberty for that guy? Well, look at verse 15. He says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You see, love puts others ahead of myself. So if I choose to flaunt my liberty in front of a brother who is stumbling over it, Paul says, I'm not walking in love. And then look at the end of verse 15. He says, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, you might want to mark that verse. That's a crusher to me. I mean, if you're struggling with this matter of giving up your liberty for your brother, if you're struggling with this idea of making a sacrifice for the good of somebody else, he says, just remember what Jesus gave up for him. Jesus died for him. That's how much he matters to God. What a contrast. Jesus puts you above his life, and I put you below my food. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and look into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ and explain to him how food was more important to me than my brother. That's not going to fly. And so he says, the people of God are more important than my liberty. And then there's a second area, and that's the kingdom of God in verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't let what is a good thing, because you do it in liberty, be spoken evil of. I heard about a church some time ago that had an argument over whether they ought to have a Christmas tree in their Christmas program. Some thought the tree was fine, others thought it was a pagan practice, and they got so angry that they actually got in fistfights. One group would drag the tree out and the other group would drag it back in. The result was they sued each other in a court of law and it was splashed all over the newspapers for the non-Christian community to read about. Now what would be the conclusion of a non-Christian when he read that about the church? He would conclude that the gospel consists of whether you have a Christmas tree or not. The main point of the Christian faith is not eating or drinking or Christmas trees. I mean, did you get saved so that you can eat and drink? Does a Jew say, I think I'll get saved so I can have a ham sandwich? No. See, the kingdom of God is not about those things. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And those things are experienced in relationship. In relationship with the Holy Spirit and in relationship with 
each other. And so Paul says, the kingdom of God is more important than my liberty. And then there's a third thing that's more important than my liberty, and that is the work of God in verses 18 to 21. Notice verse 18. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. He who in this way, in what way? With a non-judgmental attitude and a willingness to surrender your liberty. He says when you serve Christ that way, two things result. You'll be acceptable to God and approved by men. Isn't that what we want? Then notice what he says in verse 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. What makes for peace when I consider you? When I think about your needs, when I take into account what may hinder you in your Christian walk, that makes for peace. And then he says, the building up of one another, and that's what the work of God is all about, building up the body of Christ. And so Paul says, pursue these things. That's the positive aspect. And then he gives a negative aspect in verse 20. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. What is the work of God? It's changing lives. And Paul says, you be a builder, not a destroyer. Don't let your liberty tear down God's work in the lives of other people. And if that isn't enough incentive, notice the end of verse 20. He says, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. I want you to understand this. He says, not only can I by my liberty cause my brother to sin, But in that situation, my action, which is good in and of itself, becomes sin for me as well. So if I do something I have a total right to do and offend my brother, not only does he sin, I sin because I've acted not out of love. And so he's telling me that I can end up doing a right thing wrong. And then he gives the conclusion on how to relate to the weaker brother in verse 21. He says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You see, if, I, if you're a stronger brother and I ask you if eating or drinking really matters, you would say, it's no big deal. And so Paul says, since it's no big deal, then it should be no big deal for me to give up those things for my brother. That's the expression of love. Love places a priority on others rather than me. Love is willing to sacrifice my liberty for the people of God, the kingdom of God, and the work of God. You see, I've got liberty, but I live by a higher principle, and that higher principle is love, and it will always temper my liberty. Now let me add a footnote. The word weak, implies by its very meaning that Christians are not intended to remain that way. Weak is not a desirable place to be. So don't say, I like being weak. I think I'll put down roots here. That's what happens. A lot of people are weak, and so they find other people who are weak, and they start churches that are weak. The weak Christian church. The intention is that I move from weak to strong. 
That's God's intention for you. And so if you're weak, that's God's plan for you. The mature place to be is strong. And then let, let me add another note. And I really want you to understand this. You should be able to identify an individual out there for whom you are making this sacrifice. See, I have liberty. If I'm going to lay down my liberty, I need to have somebody in mind that I know is watching and that I know will be offended. I'm not to give up my liberty for some phantom person out there. You say, well, I have the liberty to do this, but I'm not going to do it because I used to know a guy on the East Coast who had a problem with this. That's not it. You see, if we do that, then what have we done? We've fallen into bondage to the weakest Christian that exists. What Paul's telling you is, if you know of a brother who's going to be offended, then you give up your liberty out of love for that particular brother. So you may be able to mow your yard on Sunday and it doesn't bother your conscience at all. That's great. You're a stronger brother. And you should go on doing that. But if somebody moves into your neighborhood who's a weaker brother, then you need to lay down that liberty because you may be offending your brother by your actions. You say, well, that sounds like hypocrisy. No, that's love. But see, if, if I know that none of my neighbors are, are weak Christians, and if I find out this guy that moved into the neighborhood is actually a professional weaker Christian or, or a Pharisee, then I may mow my yard just to make a point with my other neighbors that Christianity is not what he's promoting. But see, I have to have an individual in mind or else we'll just find the weakest Christian in the whole church and we'll all go down to that level. And that's not what Paul's saying here. second factor that should temper our liberty is personal faith in verses 22 and 23. You see, liberty is a very personal thing. And what is liberty for me may be sin for you. And so, so Paul says you need to be very careful in this area. Notice verse 22. He says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. You see, you need to work this out with the Lord. You need to sit down with, your, with the Bible and in prayer and develop your conviction before the Lord in these areas. Don't borrow somebody else's convictions. Just because I say it's not wrong, just because Paul says it's not wrong, doesn't mean it's not wrong for you. You have to take time to go from weak to strong. And you have to be careful about your conscience in the process. And so this needs to be your conviction before God. And then he goes on in verse 22 and says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. See, Paul says, if you follow this advice, you'll be happy. Whatever your conviction is. If your conviction is, I can't do it, you'll be happy if you follow your conviction. If your conviction is, I can do it, you'll be happy if you do it. And then he goes on in verse 23 and says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. When you do something that you have doubts about, when you do something that you haven't worked out as your conviction before the Lord, your conscience will condemn you, and for you, it's sin. You see, some Christians can drink a glass of wine and it's perfectly fine. 
Other Christians could drink a glass of wine and feel all kinds of guilt. Some Christians can mow their yard on Sunday and it's fine. Other Christians can mow their yard on Sunday and they'd be so scared to death they'd cut their foot off that they'd never start. Why is that? Because there's a difference in personal faith. And so we should be growing in our understanding and appreciation of our liberty in Christ, and yet Paul says, at the same time, we should be careful to be consistent with our convictions because we all have personal faith. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. A relationship with Jesus Christ expressed through relationships with other people. Isn't it fun trying to get along with everyone else? You see, when it comes to gray areas, it's not enough to have a code. It's not enough to have a system. It's not enough to be right. You've got to consider relationships. Paul says, yes, you have liberty, but be responsible in the way you use it. Be sure that your liberty is tempered by brotherly love and personal faith. And before we close today, I'm going to ask Tyler Whitaker to come forward, who was baptized today. I'm going to also ask David and Emily Sosh to come. Tyler, of course, was baptized this morning, and unfortunately, he's going to be moving to Texas, and probably the next time I see him, he'll be a Dallas Cowboy fan, so we won't have a lot in common. <laughs> this is David and Emily Sosh. Their daughter, Amanda, is seven, and Lindsay, five, and they've come to join our fellowship. They're new believers. Uh, be sure and encourage them today. I'm going to ask you folks, now that I've asked you to walk all the way down here, I'm going to ask you to walk out with Dale to the lobby. And then after we leave today, I want you to encourage these folks in their walk with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage that is difficult because it, it challenges us to make decisions. Uh, you, you, Lord, I'm thankful that you don't treat us like little babies or even little children. You let us grow up and you let us make choices in your family. And Father, I pray that we might truly understand our freedom in Christ on one hand, but also understand that we're in a fellowship, we're in a body, we're in your church, and we need to love each other. And Father, help us to enjoy that freedom, but also be careful to help those weaker than us grow up into maturity in you. And Lord, we're thankful that for that privilege, and we pray that you might have all the glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen.